0: Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg, and I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I talk to other forensic pathologists about what it's like becoming a medical examiner, and today I'm joined by Dr. Katherine Callahan. So Kat, you want to say hi and introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Katherine Callahan. Um, I'm currently living in Austin, Texas. Um, And I'm excited to be on your podcast. Thanks for
0: having me. Uh, Thanks for being part of it. I'm glad that you're excited. I'm really excited to do it. Uh, It's just sort of a fun hobby so far, but I've actually had a couple of people listen to the first episode and they seem to be excited to learn about what it feels like to do this job. But that brings me to question number one, which I've asked everyone and I continue to ask because it's the most common question I get, which is what do we actually do?
1: Yeah. So when people ask me, I basically say that I'm a doctor who investigates death. Uh, so I determine uh, how and why people die. And sometimes that includes, to answer that question, that includes doing an autopsy. Um, and so my my job basically is figuring out why people uh, die and certifying death certificates.
0: Awesome. You know, a lot of us, we all End up mentioning autopsy because I think that's what most people picture, probably from TV and movies, um, or maybe personal experience. But there is a lot more that goes into it. And so I like that you say that it could include an autopsy, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't all come back to autopsy every time.
1: Right. No, you're totally right. I think a lot of people, you know, uh, the world of forensics is kind of so foreign to a lot of people, um, which is good, I guess. Huh? Yeah. So, um, A lot of what we do, the uh, autopsy is a very important part, but like you said, it's not the only part. Uh, We do a lot of things without doing an autopsy, so our job is very important uh, for death certification. In many of those cases, uh, we may not even lay eyes on that body, uh, but we review records and stuff. And so um, there's a lot of different parts of our job, and autopsy is just one small part of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that the after that question, then my next question I get is how do I get to do that? Like, what do I have to do to get where you are? And so if you don't mind, can I ask you a little bit about your process of becoming a medical examiner? Sure. Yeah. I guess let's just start at high school. Were you a, you know, one of the valedictorian always did everything Mm -hmm. right, kids? Or did you... Were you, uh, Patrick Hansma told me that he was, you know, an Edgar Allan Poe kid. So what, what yeah. was, what was, yeah. what were you like in high school?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in a really small town in Southern New Mexico, population of like 13,000 people, one high school in the whole town. So everybody knew everyone, everyone went to the same high school. Um, so I was actually valedictorian of my high school, but it didn't, I mean, it's a very small school, so it didn't <laughs> take much as that by it. You know, as a big fish in the smallest pond possible, um, <laughs> so it was a very small community. My dad worked in a copper mine uh, there, so I, um, through high school, the big thing for me was sports. Like if you had talked to me in high school, you, I would have told you, I'm going to be an Olympian. I'm going to run track and field in the Olympics. That's really all, most of what I cared about. I cared about school, um, but mostly because. I had to do well in school to be able to do the sports I wanted to do. So sports was like my big driver, um, in high school.
0: Wow. So it's, you said if I talked to you in high school, but it sounds like I probably would have been terrified to talk to you in high school. You were the valedictorian (laughs) and you would have told me you're going to be an Olympian. I did not have that kind of, uh, I I don't even know drive back then. So good for you.
1: Yeah. Like I said, big fish in a tiny, tiny pond. Yeah. Um, but so I, um, sports were like my life and so I really worked hard to get um, an athletic scholarship to college and so um, after high school so high school though high school I really did gravitate I mean I loved I loved school um, but I really did gravitate to the sciences like I loved biology I loved we dissected a frog in my science class my biology class and I loved that so I did kind of at an early age kind of gravitate more towards um, sciences and biology in particular. So when I went to college, um, I, you know, like I said, I tried. I got a sports scholarship. I For went what to college and I it? automatically signed up in um, like biology classes as a major.
0: What sport were you playing?
1: started running track and field when I was in the third grade, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Um, yeah, because I have I have two kids now, and one of them is in fifth grade. And I, I always think back of myself in the fifth grade, and I was already I was competing. I was racing, and I look at my kid now, and I'm like, I can't believe I was doing that at his <laughs> age. But, um, yeah, I my parents, I remember coming home one day in the third grade, and there was a little small track team in my community that ran in the summers, and I was like, I want to join this team. So I um, joined this track and field team, and we would compete. It was USA track and field. We would compete um, all over the country uh, in the summer um, doing track meets. And so I was recruited out of high school more for track and field, but I kind of, because I started so early, I think I got burnt out. And so I actually took a volleyball scholarship at the University of Portland uh, in Oregon. um, Oh, I don't know if I knew that. Cool. Yeah, I don't know if I. Yeah, I don't know if I told you that. Yeah, yeah. So I, University of Portland's a very small. It's one of the smallest Division One schools in the country. Um, so they were when I was there. They were in the West Coast Conference. Um, so we played a bunch of California schools and and then we also played Gonzaga. Um, yeah. And so I, I played um, volleyball there for two years.
0: Nice. What What was your major in? Do they have majors? Is that how? That yeah, scored? they
1: have majors. Yeah. Yeah. So my major was just at University of Portland. It was just, it was biology. My major was biology. It wasn't pre-med. It wasn't, um, I don't don't remember kids in my college being pre-med. We were just biology, but I wasn't even thinking of medicine at that point. I was still very focused on sports. So I thought, you know, I want to be a physical therapist, maybe some kind of like sports medicine, athletic training kind of thing. So during my first two years of I was a biology major. I was taking like biology, chemistry, organic chemistry. Um, but I wasn't medicine wasn't even on my radar, really it was mostly physical therapy, I
0: would say. Okay, so when did that change? When did you sort of yeah decide- that changed.
1: So after two years in Portland, <laughs> so I, growing up in sunny New Mexico, it was you know, uh, blue skies, sunny uh, and the, the Pacific Northwest weather really did get to me. Um, and then also, playing volleyball kind of got to me to and I missed track and field and so I my junior year I reached out to the University of New Mexico track coach had, who had recruited me um, out of high school and just said hey you know I'm missing track and field I don't know if you remember me if you do would you be you know interested in me joining the team and he said sure come on down so I transferred to uh, University of New Mexico my junior year and I Uh, ran tracking field there for my junior and senior year. And it was at that point, so I started taking you know, uh, biology courses in New Mexico and that's where everyone, if you ask them, they were like, I'm pre-med. And I was like, pre-med? You know, I just had never really (laughs) thought of it and I'm like, all these people are pre-med, what does that even mean? And then I find out it's just basically biology. Um, But I think because everyone I was in classes with was pre-med, I started thinking more about medicine and um my older sister actually she went to physical therapy school and got her master's and she said she told me she's like you're not I don't think it's going to be a good fit for you you should go to medical school and she actually after physical therapy school applied to med school and she's a pediatrician now so we we were two years apart uh in med school so she kind of is the reason I shifted my mind I think to medicine because she was she knows me well and she's like you'll you'll enjoy medicine more. So,
0: Well, that's nice. I mean, it's nice to have some advice like that from someone who knows you.
1: Right, right. Yep. No, I think her, I mean, she was two years ahead of me in med school too, so she kind of, we went to the same school and I got all of her books and she,
0: you know, was a good mentor for me for sure. So where did you end up going to med school?
1: Yeah, so I went to University of New Mexico. So I finished my undergrad there and then um, applied early decision. So it was the only medical school I applied to. And with early decision, if you get in, you're basically committing to the school. So I got in. And so that was very nice. Um, and not that it was kind of stressful, but I know it could have been a lot more stressful. Um, these days I feel like for, uh, students have to apply to a ton of schools to get in. Um, but I was pretty lucky.
0: So your sister, was she already at the med school at that time? She was two years. ahead. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. So she's four years ahead of me in age. So she, after she uh, got her master's in physical therapy, um, actually she was still in physical therapy when she applied to med school and she got in. um, So she ended up being, she was two classes ahead of me in med school. So we were together at the same school. Obviously she was in clinical years and I was in, you know, the first two years. Um, So different, different, you know, parts of school, but we were together for two years.
0: Okay. Well, I want to, I want to talk for a second about when you were at uh, UNM for college for your undergrad Mm -hmm. and you were you know, you started identifying with the idea of being pre-med. Um, did that affect anything that you were doing? It sounds like you were already sort of doing the pre-med curricula and you were already doing yeah. the pre-med thing. You just didn't identify with it. So did you change anything?
1: Right. It's weird, you know, and in hindsight, I think, and I, I want, I'm I sure a lot of people think this, like I'm, I think I just was like, I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. And I just never... I, in my mind, my mind, I don't know if it was self sabotage or what, but I'm just like I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. So I don't think I even allowed myself to really think about it um, until, like I said, everyone around me was thinking about it, and I was like, wait, why? You know, am, can I do this if they can do this? You know, and then I think um, my sister was a big driving force too um, because we came. I think. Coming from a very small town, I already was just like, oh, you know, from this small town, we don't, you know, we don't become doctors. And so I think that was part of it, too. I was just a little bit insecure about where I came from and my education. And in hindsight, I don't know why, but I think that's just kind of that's how I felt.
0: So do you and think it that it was, to- it was it uh, was people, the people around you being more open about wanting to do it, that that's what sort of gave you the confidence or was there something in class or? what happened that made you change your mind that you could Yeah, do
1: it? yeah. I think it was just everyone around me. And you know, and I was doing well in the classes. Yeah, I was I was doing well and then I would see people who might not be getting exactly the grades I was getting and they were they were like, Oh, I'm gonna be a doctor And I just remember being like, If they can be a doctor, I can be a doctor yeah. <laughs> You know, like I <laughs> I think I was I think it was just a moment where I kind of was like, You can do this if you want to do it. It was a slow kind of transition for me, I think, where where I just kind of realized and gained confidence just by the people around me. And then I was doing decent in school and was like, I think, you know, if these other people can do this. I think I can do it too. But I often wonder if I'd stayed in Portland, if I would have felt that way, because it was a, it was a smaller school. It was a private school and everyone was, no one was like t- openly talking about medical school. So I don't know if I would have, uh, I, I probably would have ended up still going to med school I think but if it would have taken me a little bit longer to come around to it then if I had if I hadn't transferred
0: to New Mexico Interesting I got to say it's it's interesting to me that you're someone who was the valedictorian in high school and you've been competitive <laughs> since you were 5 years old and you you would have said I'm going to be an Olympian and then know, you, when someone yeah. thought you know hey are you going to be a doctor and you're like oh no I'm not I'm not that, capable of that. that. Yeah, I know. What an interesting right. place for your confidence yeah. to fail. Uh, but I'm glad that, you know, mm-hmm. it may be just being surrounded by people that normalized it helped. And so that's great. And so you were right, in right, college yeah. and
1: then I finished college. Um, and then, yeah, so I, it took me five years to get through undergrad. Um, cause doing sports, it was, I took kind of the minimum credit hours each semester. I never overloaded myself. Um, I never did summer school because I was training, So it took me. It really took me four and a half to finish the curriculum. But I, you know, I stretched it out to five years and took like extra PE classes and stuff for that (laughs) that fifth year. (laughs) And then, um, and then I I took a year off and worked at Starbucks uh, between medical school and um, undergrad. So, like when you do the math, I was always a couple years older than the people I was in like medical school with. The ones that went straight through, I was always a little bit older. Do you, you think that helped?
0: Class. Do you think it helped you?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, I always look back at these, these new programs that are the um, BS or BAMD programs where you decide right out of high school, basically, that you're um, – I, I think New Mexico has one of these programs where um, you decide if, you know, right out of high school if you want to go to med school. And then they accept you into this kind of accelerated Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science MD program. I look back at that and there's no way I would have known out of high school. I would never have had the maturity to make that decision. Um, so I think for me, kind of the process I went through and maybe being a couple years older um, did help me uh, definitely. Cause I was a little bit slower at, you know, gaining the confidence and maturing <laughs>
0: compared to some other people maybe. So why did you take the time off the, the gap year between undergrad and med school to, to work at Starbucks? Where you, uh, waiting yeah, to make sure you was, wanted to go or was this, did you have other plans yeah, or what happened?
1: I, yeah. I basically took that summer to study like the extra time to study for the MCAT. Cause I, I, I figured out that I would probably want to go to med school, but it was, I was still competing a lot. Um, and I just didn't think I would have the time to study for the MCAT, you know, compete and do well in school. I didn't want to overload myself. So I kind of took a year to just take the MCAT, uh, take a, a prep course to study for the MCAT uh, and take the MCAT and didn't really um, rush it.
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, I worked at Starbucks a lot. I worked at Starbucks when I was in Hollywood. I worked at Starbucks uh, oh, nice. a little bit when I was in college. So I've, I've been in and out of uh, that green apron many times in my life.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I always look back at that year very fondly. It was a good time, you know, just to kind of put the brakes on life, I think, and just have a good, have a good time for a year. No, very minimal stress.
0: Well, yeah, because medical school changes that, right? Like things change when COVID. you go to med school. Although it sounds like for you, you've been, uh, you've been giving yourself, uh, you know, you had a lot of irons in the fire your whole life. So was med school yeah, a big was, change or not?
1: It was a change in a different way. It was, um, it was the first time in my life where I wasn't training and competing. So it was, I had so much free time like almost too much. I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> so we would, it was, um, yeah, it was, I almost felt like I was living my college experience in med school because my college experience was like very, I didn't have much time, you know, we would in for, during volleyball, we would have two a day practice. So we would be practicing in the morning. I would go to class and we would practice in the afternoon and then you would be gone on the weekend during for games and stuff. So I didn't have much time to do what I think most college students do. So during med school, that was kind of my time. I, we would have class in the morning and then the afternoons would be to study. And I just honestly didn't know what to do with myself because normally my afternoons were training. And so I was just, I was like, there's just too many hours in the day, you know? Um, <laughs> well, but that's not a feeling was, most
0: people have anymore.
1: I know, I know. No, it was, it was, it was interesting. I, I actually made it pretty quickly though to to it, but it was, um, I really, yeah. enjoyed that about med school was having more, more time, um, personal time as compared to my college experience.
0: Well, we had very different college experiences you and I, because I did not, I didn't (laughs) do any of those sports and I had the college experience during college. And so when I went to medical school, I was like, you know, I also had a ton of free time, but they expected me to use it wisely. And it took me a little, a little bit of time to figure out what that meant. And so med school was quite stressful for me at the beginning while I was learning how to be a proper student, but it sounds like you had your schedule on lock from, from the get go. And so that's nice.
1: It was. Yeah, it was. And I think, um, but I've been so used to telling, it was weird. Um, it's going to sound very bizarre, but it's like, it was kind of a time for me to find (laughs) self-motivation because I, i had been, people had been telling me what to do for so long. So, I mean, I just knew I had to show up at a certain time to practice. I had to do this at a certain time. So I didn't even like, there was, I just did what was told of me, um, throughout most of my, you know, you know, athletic life. So having this time where I was like, oh, I can decide what to do with my time. You know, it took me a little bit of, um, it was uncomfortable for a while. because I'm like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I, am I studying too much or did I not study enough or because I used to, um, when I was doing athletics, it, there was—I mean, I would have very structured time. Like, okay, you're only going to have you are only going to have two hours to study for this test, so you better, you know, cram it into it right. And so, when you have like more of an endless amount of time, it just gets kind of like, when do I start to study? When do I stop studying? I don't really know. So I—I I had to kind of grow into myself in that way during med school, which was I, something I had not even thought about.
0: Um, yeah, that's so interesting. interesting. I. You know, my yeah. experience with med school was, I guess in terms of studying, you know, it just basically was, there was more information that I had to memorize and learn and whatever. And so because right. of that, it was a, a huge time commitment. But one thing that I thought about med school was actually kind of how nice it was to finally be part of the. I don't know how to phrase it so it sounds better, but if it's part of the academic machine where once you're in med school, yeah. there are people yep. there who, who you tell them what you want and they tell you how to get there. They say, okay, well, right. if you want that, yeah. you need to join this club and do this and do that. But right. pre-med was such a nightmare because if you have the goal, of getting into medical school, you can tell people and they're going to say good luck with that. And that's about it. That's right. all you get. And you look it up online you get, Yeah, and everyone mm-hmm. online says there's no way you can go because you're not smart enough and you just, it gets stressful. Right. Yeah. But once you're in right. people hold your hand and walk you through and that's real nice. It's you just so, have to study. Yes.
1: Yes. That's exactly how which I love my medical school. I can't say enough great things about it. And that was one thing that I absolutely loved about UNM was once you were in you, they advocated you for you, like, all the time. They were there to help you. Anything you needed, they were there. They were there to support you and they wanted you to succeed. And so yeah, once you get in, you just, you feel like you have a lot of help, you know, people telling you how to do things, um, giving you advice and it's it's really nice for sure.
0: So did you have the moment that I I can still, I, I can still remember the feeling in my stomach when I went from, I hope, I hope, I hope I get in. And then I got the email that I did get in. I got off, mm-hmm. I, I got yeah. in off the wait list. And I remember okay. getting that email and I I was ecstatic for like you yes. know six minutes yeah. and then my yep. stomach just cramped up and I thought, <laughs> yes. oh my God, now I have to do this. Did
1: I you know they are like, what am I doing? Yeah. Oh, totally. I had a, so I, um, during that year that I worked at Starbucks, I also worked in a neuroscience lab at the med school part-time. So I was, um, Right before I got my acceptance letter, I, got, I was riding my bike to the neuroscience lab and got hit by a car. What? Um, so I, yeah. So I tore my ACL. So I remember um, I was on crutches. I had just had surgery. And I, I'm older than you. So mine came through the snail mail. It wasn't an email. So I actually got a snail mail letter. And my sister and I lived together in a house by uh, the med school where I was working. And she checked the mail and she brought it to me. And I remember... She's like, oh, here it is, here it is. And we were together and we walked out into this like foyer kind of part of the med school. And I was on my crutches and uh, standing there trying to open this letter. And she was there with me, just staring at me. And I opened it and I was the, oh man, the excitement. I forgot that I had a surgerized knee and started jumping up and down and <laughs> dropped my crutches. And she was like, no, no. I was like, oh my God. She, of course, my knee started hurting like crazy. But I, there was, yeah, just such excitement and such relief. But yeah. Then immediately it's like, oh, sport, you know, I got to do it. I can't fail now. You know, I'm in. I can't fail. And you think about all the hard work it's going to be. But, um, but I would say the excitement definitely was like way more than the fear. Um, it was
0: cool. I cannot believe you just sort of walked right past the fact that you started that story with <laughs> I got hit by a car. Oh,
1: yeah. I know. What's crazy is like I made it through my whole like athletic career in college and never had a major injury. And it was this year, this year between undergrad and um, med school that I'm just riding my bike. And I got, it was like a low rate of speed kind of hitting me. And I, but I knew that what the, the, what I felt in my knee, I I knew I had torn my ACL because I had so many teammates do it. And my knee buckled the second I stood up and I was like, Oh man, like I know what, I know what this is. So
0: So I, I remember being like, huh? So, did that end your, you know, you've been a uh, pretty intense athlete since you were a child. Yeah. In that moment, yeah. did you have a, like, okay, well, it's good I'm in med school because now.
1: Right. I remember thinking, like, I just remember being thankful that this happened after all my athletics were over. It's just it's such a uh, weird thing. I've talked to other athletes that, that were college athletes. And so, once I stopped competing in college, I just didn't really exercise anymore it's (laughs) kind of sad because it's such a big part of your life but then when you're not being told what to do and you don't have something to train for you kind of just get lost and I so for that whole year after college I wasn't really even doing I wasn't running I wasn't playing I wasn't really doing much so it didn't the surgery didn't actually change my life that much at that moment because I wasn't like actively running all the time yeah I just remember being thankful that I had made it I was like you need to look at the positive. You need to be thankful that you made it through all of your college athletics without being, you know, significantly injured. And that this, if this is going to happen, it's a good time to happen now. So,
0: so once you're in med school, so you get accepted and. I, my experience with that was I went into medical school with this idea that I was, I was absolutely certain that I was going to either end up in neurology or neurosurgery because of the background I had in neuroscience. And I I loved that stuff. And so I was, I was dead set. I told people on the first day, that was my plan. I was going to do one of those two. I didn't know which one, but I knew it was going to be one of those two. Did you go in that way or did you have, were you more (laughs) open-minded?
1: I was like, I knew I, I, well, I knew, I thought I was going to do some kind of primary care. And I don't know if that was just because my school kind of, you know, they're very strong in primary care uh, and rural medicine. And so I just kind of envisioned myself being like a family medicine doctor or a pediatrician. And that's all I thought about. I never even, I, I didn't even know what pathology was. I didn't even know what a forensic pathologist was. So that was not even close on my radar. I thought it would be like family medicine was really kind of what I thought I was going to do.
0: Okay. Um, And when did that that, change?
1: Yeah, very quickly. So um, after our first year of medical school in New Mexico, we do this thing called the practical immersion experience where the summer after your first year, you go and you work in a rural environment with a primary care doctor. So I went back home to my hometown uh, in New Mexico, Silver City, New Mexico, and worked with my dad's doctor, primary, uh, his, Family practitioner doctor, and he's a really amazing physician. But it was um, he was running himself ragged. It was at a time where um, doctors, at least in the small community, if their patients were hospitalized, they would still round on them in the hospital and then have to go see a full clinic panel of patients. And so he was just super busy, and his his practice was actually he was super busy, but his pac- practice was going bankrupt at the time too it was just like a bad all around thing. And I was like, this guy's working so hard and he's going bankrupt. (laughs) Like it just didn't make sense to me. And it was, uh, he was having patients fill his prescription pads and like trying to write themselves prescription meds for prescriptions for pain meds and stuff. And I was like, what is happening? And it just kind of really turned me off to primary care. Um, And so when I came back my second year, everyone had such a great experience in the summer and they were like, how amazing it was and how they were just so, you know, like glad that they were going to be a doctor. And I was having the opposite experience. I was like, Oh no, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Like, what have, what have I done? That's and a so cool program was,
0: that they have that yeah, like, summer really experience. Is, yeah. Like that's like summer camp from eighties uh, movies. It is.
1: Know? And it's cool. Cause it's during, you know, that those first two years when it's so kind of book heavy to have that time where you're like, okay, no, there's, this is what I'm going to be doing. You know? We have to study the books and all that to get to this. So it gives you a little bit of, you know, a little teaser of what your career is going to be like. So I think it gave a lot of people, you know, that rejuvenation, like, okay, you know, let's push through the second year and then we'll get to clinicals. But for me, it was a little bit different. So I was having like a weird freak out and was thinking about like, did I make the right choice? Because I really did like science. So I thought like, should I have gone to like a PhD program? Should I be like a basic scientist? I don't know. And OK, then, so um, now's
0: when when you started in on the uh, I don't know if I should be here thought process.
1: Right. Right. Basically, right. Kind everyone of like, goes through. Uh, right. Exactly. Totally. And so my school, um, they have this thing called the uh, Post-Sophomore Pathology Fellowship. So it's um, they try to kind of recruit people to pathology and kind of introduce them to pathology. So two students, they accept two students per year in between years. And in third year, you take a year off and you basically work like a first year pathology resident. So you rotate through the different specialties that a first year pathology resident would rotate through. And back in the day when pathology was a five year residency, if you did this post sophomore pathology fellowship, they would give you a year credit for it. Oh, that's cool. um, But path changed to four years. And so then it was just another it was you didn't get credit for it. You just it was an experience that you had, So. Um, I heard about I heard about this fellowship and was like we had pathologists, both surgical pathologists and some forensic pathologists lecture us during our first year of medical school just on diseases and stuff. And I really enjoyed their lectures. So I was like, oh, you know, I um, I applied for the fellowship and got in. And that was basically a game changer for me. That's where everything changed. And I became very excited and excited. passionate
0: about pathology. So tell me more about that because I, you know, we had, gosh, I can't even, I can't even remember if we had, I think we probably had that post-sophomore fellowship at where I went to school as well, but I never really understood the drive to go there. You know, I had, I do know that people do it because they have a a partner that's a year behind them in med school or they have a reason they need to be around an extra year. So it sounds like you did the post-sophomore year because you were struggling with, why am I even here? What, like, what do I want to do because I didn't enjoy my clinical experience. So maybe medicine isn't right for me. And was it also an opportunity to take a year away from school and try to re-decide if you want to finish or was this purely on pathology or what?
1: Right, right. So I was kind of, you know you start school and automatically those loans start racking up. So I was just like, you've got this money hanging over your head that you're accruing this debt. And then you're thinking like, Oh man, did I make the right choice? And so for me, it was a a way to kind of pump the brakes. I was getting paid a salary. I didn't get paid like a first year resident. I made less money, but it was, I didn't have to take out loans that year. Obviously the interest on my loans was accruing, but it was a year where I, I made a salary. I was able to kind of, figure out and not make any rash decisions about, you know, what am I looking for now? Like to kind of transition, like, okay, we thought it was going to be family medicine, but clearly, you know, we're having second thoughts about that now, you know, kind of looking into what else medicine offers. And if I really felt like it was the right fit still and that year was just um, perfect for me, but you're right. It kind of is once you're, you know, once you're not getting the credit for that year anymore, that maybe you would have gotten if you were, interested in pathology back in the day when it was five years, there really isn't much, yeah, like who does that year? You're right. Like people who might, yeah, like you said, have a partner in a different class where you have to hang out for a year or um, maybe someone who is thinking about paths, but they're not quite sure and they want to be fully immersed in it and see if they like it. But yeah, I think my, I think UNM still offers that program, but I'm not sure.
0: So I'm Um, thinking about, you going back to, uh, in your sort of summer camp of, uh, of family practice back in your hometown. And I'm yeah. picturing you going from, you know, valedictorian of your small school and then off to Portland and then back to New Mexico. But in, I, I think UNM is in Albuquerque. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're in yep. Albuquerque, which is the big city as far as New Mexico goes. And right then you are in med school. And now a lot of stuff in your life has changed. You're no longer the, you know, like deeply in sports like you had been and right. you head back to your small town. And not only that, but you're participating with the doctor that is your dad's doctor. So you're right back in the <laughs> yeah. thick of it with your small town and the, the family right, there. Right. Do you feel like right. that affected your interest in the practice? Just the fact that you were in your own small town again, did it make it better or worse? Oh. It didn't affect you.
1: Right. You know, maybe. That, you know, I never really thought about that, Eric. That's good. Because it was um, my small town life was different, you know, like I was an athlete. It was like, yeah, maybe that was part of it where I was having some kind of a weird identity issue about, you know, who I was and what I was doing. Um, yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. I mean, um, I just,
0: I know that, that I've gone back to, I, I've lived in a lot of towns, so I don't know if I have any particular place that I really consider home. But when I go back to visit, like even the place where my high school was in, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, when I go there, yeah. it, it, it feels strange because I know that yes. the person I am now is so different than the person I was back then that the city right. feels different. And I just, I, I would say, honestly, it's unpleasant for me because, yeah. you know, I, I have, I've at least chosen to hang on to fond memories from that time. And when I go back and it feels different, it feels unwelcome.
1: So I love my small town and my parents still live there and it's great. But one thing I never, I, one thing I knew for sure was that I was never going to be there. Like I was never going to live there again. And so that might've been part of it too, was like, I'm practicing, you know, as a med student, but practicing medicine in this environment that you know, subconsciously, I know I'm never going to be here. So maybe my, it was hard for me to reconcile, like seeing, you know, medicine, like this is not what I want, which is not what it would have been anyways, because I wouldn't have ever lived there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of different practice options, but it it does seem like an interesting situation to put yourself in. And I just, I imagine that that was strange Yeah, when you did the pathology uh, post-sophomore pathology fellowship, Yep. which you know, the the thing during med school in case we have yeah. so many different fellowships that we talk about that. I just don't want to confuse right. people, but when you were in right, med school right. and you did that uh, job during med school, where you went back and worked right. essentially as a first year pathology resident while you were a student, what did you like about that? Cause you said you got really, yeah. that made you excited. What was it about it that you enjoyed? So, yeah, I
1: really did. I really love making diagnoses. I think being able to, as a pathologist, so most of it, you know, I did, I did three months doing autopsy and forensics. I did three months in surgical pathology. I did three months in hematopathology, and then I did three months of research. Um, and I would say, like, for me, um, it's crazy, but the most enjoyable parts were the surgical pathology and the hematopathology, and I just really enjoyed being able to work with these pathologists who could look at something out of the microscope and make a diagnosis and that be it, you know, not having to, sometimes it was like, Oh, it could be this or that. And we'll order some more testing and then figure it out. But it was very rewarding to be able to say, this is what it is. Move on to the next case. Um, I liked that. So, and you know, not every area of medicine is like that. Being able to make definitive diagnoses and move on.
0: Oh, um, I know, I know that, what you that's, mean. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Uh, you know, you, you know that I did emergency medicine before switching. Yeah, yeah. And That is, you know, sometimes in emergency medicine, you definitely can make diagnoses and I don't want to put a blanket out there that they don't. But one of the most common diagnoses that I would give is you're not having anything that's going to kill you. You have abdominal pain. I don't know why, but it's none of the stuff that you're going to die from. And you should speak to your doctor when they have an appointment. And that does grow very frustrating. I mean, there's some reward in it because you can disprove the dangerous stuff and that's great. And to some extent you're differentiating that undifferentiated patient, but there is something so gratifying about, you know, they see something on a CT scan, surgeon cuts it out, they hand it to you, you look at it and say, it's probably a renal cell carcinoma and you put it under the microscope and you go, yes, it is. And then you just write it down and that's pretty cool. That's a gratifying feeling. And so I definitely can identify with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the biggest part. And then, you know, I, I'm a big believer it's the people that you're practicing with can really decide what you go into. So the hematopathology department at the, at New Mexico at the time was very strong. Dr. Fucar, Kathy Fucar was there. She's a well-known hematopathologist. I think she's retired now, but She is such a great teacher. Um, And I remember sitting at the scope with her and just being like, I want to be like her. She's amazing. And that I think was the biggest influence on me at the time. And that's really that experience with her and her team is what pushed me to choose pathology. Uh, So it's crazy that at all that I didn't end up doing somatopathology, but that was like my experience with her and her being such a great teacher and just being so positive and passionate about um, her work is what really pushed me into um, pathology.
0: So what was your experience with, you said you did uh, during that rotation, during that year you did autopsy and forensics. And I, I think that yeah. I know something specific about UNM that's actually quite unique, which is that their forensics department is actually integrated into the hospital system and the education system. Is that right? Yeah, it is. That's yep. very and, uncommon. Uh, and I don't think most uh, post-sophomore fellows will do rotations in forensics no? unless it's a specific request. So. That means right. that you got that right. early exposure to forensics. What was that like? What was your I, first autopsy like?
1: Yeah. So it's uh, because of the school, you know, the, like the, the OMI, the medical investigator is part of the school um, as first year med students. So even before the fellowship, as first year med students, you are required to go watch an autopsy, which I think is a great experience because it gives you exposure to, you know, autopsy pathology, but it also just like gives you exposure to an autopsy and you really just can appreciate that and so during my first year of med school um (laughs) the very first autopsy that I saw I actually walked out I couldn't handle it (laughs) it was too much I was like all in my head and it wasn't too much in terms of visuals and like sounds or smells it was um I couldn't stop thinking this person was alive yesterday and they're dead today. Like it was too much. Thank you. I
0: absolutely, stuff. that absolutely <laughs> happened to me as well. And I, I mentioned before I was the kid in high school that I had to leave biology class when they, t- you know, brought out anything with blood, it would make me sick. You dissected a frog. <laughs> yes, I know that my class yes. did, but I didn't, I had to walk out. <laughs> but you, and you're uh, not one of them. Yeah. my experience with, yeah. it wasn't an autopsy, I guess it's sort of an autopsy, but it was in my first year of med school. Um, they did a, a sort of, They presented it as a, here's a case. Let's see if you guys can work it through. And they said, it's a, you know, this is a 50 whatever year old woman and she's presenting with no pain, but she's noticing that her body is turning yellow. And so we all, you know, we're barely, barely starting in med school. And eventually we all kind of together work out with the teachers that this woman has pancreatic cancer and she has a a really Mm. large mass in the head of her pancreas. And we work it out and yeah. we talk about the physiology. And I thought it was really interesting. And they said, okay, everybody stand up. And we walk over into the autopsy suite and they say, this is her. Oh my God. And what? I was, oh I was so shocked. Like the, no. the that was not how I recommend they do that again no. in the future. No, and they should no. warn us that this is not a hypothetical situation. We're about to yes. meet this person. But it was a a very powerful feeling to really connect like, hey, all this stuff we're talking about has a purpose. We are learning stuff about real people to help real people. But then we did see, I mean, we saw her and we saw the autopsy. And so I was absolutely, I was absolutely overwhelmed with emotion and it was really difficult. And then, you know, over the course of the year, we progressed through anatomy lab and it became easier. But um, right. They really, really hit hard on that connection to this. This was a, a living person very recently right. and their family yeah, is yeah. outside and we're going to talk to them and that right. kind of thing. And so that was, yeah. that was a lot back then.
1: It is really heavy. And I don't, that was my first year. And then during the fellowship, um, so the way that the, you know, the OMI in New Mexico is, is, so the, like we said, forensics is part of the university. And so the autopsy service and the forensic cases are all done in the same facility But, you know, the residents and some of the doctors will handle the autopsy, the hospital autopsy cases. And then other people, the fellows and other staff will handle the forensic cases. And so it is a big mix. It was a little bit overwhelming, just the sheer number of bodies sometimes because it's a statewide system. So, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, we have one person that died in the hospital and their doctor or their family wants an autopsy. So here's this one person. It was like 20 bodies, you know. And so at the beginning, you're just kind of like whoa there whoa there's just a lot of bodies here and there's a lot of people dying because you don't I mean before that I didn't think about how many people die per day and die in different ways and so I think it just really opened my eyes up um, to obviously mortality and it was kind of a I think I was dealing more with that during my three months (laughs) Uh, just dealing with being comfortable with mortality so I didn't Forensics was not on my radar. It was so far. I was like, I'm gonna make it through these three months, and then we're gonna go do team pass. Like, I'm not even. It was. Um, it was a good experience, but it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was like the most enjoyable experience because I was mostly in my head, just dealing with my emotions of death. <laughs>
0: Can you tell time. me more about that? Like, that's something I find really interesting because we we have a unique job right in all of medicine yeah, a lot yeah. of people see death and will be around death but we we really are the ones who are the most familiar and i'll tell you from yeah. when i was in the emergency room and the critical care units we would see people go from living to dead but after yeah like after pronouncing someone dead really my only interaction was to let the nursing staff know that they could remove medical devices or not and to whether or not I needed to call the medical examiner. And so I really right. didn't have much involvement and I certainly didn't have any real involvement with families after the fact. And so it's only from this job that I I really started feeling that connection to what the end the end of life is like. So can you walk me through any like what what were you feeling? What were you thinking about back then? That was giving yeah, you such trouble. I
1: think- yeah, I think, like I said, the, the kind of the sheer number and just, you know, you realize, I think for me, um, you're not realizing how many people are dying of every day of different things. One big thing for me was suicide because suicides don't make the news. And right. so just seeing all the time how many people are taking their own lives of all ages, young to really old and in different ways, that was kind of – and then I would get in my head about how um, – you know, distraught they must have been. And then I would go into like, oh my gosh, they're poor families. And so it would just be this cycle of thoughts, you know, as I'm standing there in front of, you know, someone who had hanged themselves or someone who had shot themselves. And so I would transition in between like, okay, let's do this case and focus on the information we need. So I would, I would like transition between like, let's measure this gunshot wound and oh, interesting. This is the pathway it took, you know? And then a few minutes later, just thinking about their wife or their children. And it was like, it took that year for me was difficult in that way because I just did not know how to navigate it. And that's when I realized, like, oh, my gosh, this is I don't know. I did, that's why I said it did, was not even on my radar because it was it was an emotional kind of difficult roller coaster for me those three months. And I was like, there's and I remember thinking there's no way I'm doing this. Like, yeah. there's, there's no way I'm doing this job. Like, well, I was like, I can't do this job.
0: Let's skip ahead and we'll come back and talk about your actual forensic pathology fellowship. But I want to so you do this job now. Right, you, you jumped right, from not you're, that you're not gonna yeah. do it to now you are <laughs> and you have to deal with this right. stuff every day. So what right, right. what have you, like how, how do you cope?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, I have a really hard time. So I've realized that, you know, the investigators and medical examiner's office, I have so much respect for them because they're the people that actually go into the homes and interview family members they're the people that are in a home seeing, you know, photographs of the, the the decedent alive. Um, I don't, for me, the way I deal with this job is I, um, it becomes very like I'm dealing with a body that is no longer really a person. Um, and I just kind of have to separate myself and not think of them as a living person. Um, and that's basically, basically how I cope. Like there's no more suffering for them. And I really, I, basically now I think more of the family needs for me to be a voice for the decedent. Now I need to be a voice for them. Um, and that's the most rewarding thing I can do is be a voice for the decedent and give um, answers to the family. And so I kind of, as much as I try to shut off the chatter in my brain about like, Oh my gosh, their poor wife or their poor family, it still happens. That's just, I'm, I'm an empathetic person in that way. So that still creeps in every now and then, but not as much as it did, obviously uh, when I was a medical student but it's still kind of things that I struggle with and will kind of creep up, not really when I'm doing the case, but say maybe I'm preparing for trial, that sometimes I'll be like, oh, gosh, this case was horrible. You know, at the time I knew it was bad, but I had something to focus on. You know, I got to get all this information. I got to work this case up. I got to, you know, do everything correctly for this decedent and be a voice for them. And then kind of later – when I'm reviewing everything, usually when it's to go to court, it kind of seeps in just how heavy, heavy it is. So um, sometimes I do wonder like it later in life, if (laughs) if I'm going to be like, am I messed up?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, that's true for anyone, right? So you said um, something that I, I say something very similar, which is that, you know, all, all jobs in medicine are very sad. There's everyone, you know, you give, you give a bad diagnosis. Most of the time, Mm -hmm. that's what medicine is. And so right. you can't really get away from that when you're being part of the healthcare field. Cause you're taking care of people who are in a constant state of getting worse. That's just what people do. So totally. True. The thing yep. is with our decedents, you said, and I mm-hmm. agree that their suffering is over everything that happened. Right. Right. It's happened. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing right. we can change. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like that, that absolves me of the sadness a little bit and I don't feel yeah. as bad. And I kind of focus right. on, I I somewhat think of my patient as being all the people that are still alive that care about the answers I'm looking for. And so that's that's what I use to cope with it. I mean, it's it is terrible, but it's also over. It is, And so.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from with that stuff. It's definitely been an interesting experience going from. You know, I did stand-up comedy before I did all this. And it's just an interesting right. experience doing, like, <laughs> right, seeing yeah. people go through such extremes in life and at the end of life. So I, I hear you. Um, let's right, talk yeah. about let's talk so, about your fellowship before I get myself too distracted. Yeah. So you, yeah, yeah. at some point, you were in, uh, so did you start, where did you go to residency?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, so after so I graduated med school, so I knew from that post-sophomore year, I'm like, pathology is it. So I was really just focused, you know, I went through the rest of the clinicals, but I knew I was going to apply for pathology residency. So I did, um, I did residency at Stanford and I basically um, wanted to go to Stanford because they had really strong heme path and surgical pathology. And my, my ultimate dream at the time was to work in academic medicine. I wanted to work at a hospital, academic hospital and teach, you know, trainees, med students, residents, surge path and hematopathology. Um, And then I had another kind of (laughs) moment during my first year of residency where I was like, Oh man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And had a little crisis for myself, like thinking about, you know, did I make the right choice again? Um, It was uh, so, like I said, hematopathology in New Mexico, Kathy Pucar really was great. The hematopathology department at Stanford was amazing too, but it was, I think my experience there made me realize I just identified more with Kathy Pucar and not maybe hematopathology. (laughs) So when I got to Stanford and kind of realized what my career was going to be like uh, in hematopathology, which was basically, you know, a lot of microscope computer work, microscope computer work, um, I was like, oh, gosh, is this, I'm not really going to be using my hands as much as I would like to. Is this, you know, the right fit? And I kind of was up in the the air again about what am I going to do? And just about that time, my forensic rotation rolled around. So it was. Uh, I rotated through the Santa Clara Corners office my second year of residency, and for some reason, it clicked. It was like it just felt right. I was uh, at a different level. I think of maturity. I had different experiences under my belt, and after that rotation, I was like, it was forensics all the way. So it was kind of a interesting, security
0: route to um, to forensics. How did your staff at Stanford take it when you, when you broke the news to them that you were no longer going to do search path?
1: Right. Yeah. So I feel like, I think a lot of people will probably say that forensics kind of the, the redheaded stepchild. Um, They were not really, they, I mean, they weren't not supportive, but they weren't supportive. I just kind of dropped off. It was, um, I was just kind of, a resident that no one really approached me to do any before that it was like people asking me to do projects and publications and you know kind of almost um, courting you to become you know one of them and then once you avoid interest in forensics you just fall off of everybody's radar
0: it's such Things an interesting kind of system are, right i i still am not yeah, sure it is. what has led to the way that this works but it right. seems like there's just such a bias against forensics within uh, the true, overall yeah. pathology world. And actually, there was a really nice article, um, I believe it was in CAP, about how, you know, we they, they need to not abandon forensic pathology because, as they mentioned and as I feel, I, I think the work we do is very important and it's very necessary yeah. and legally required. So I, it right. it's I a strange thing say, that I they think... don't uh, support it as much. Right.
1: Yeah. One thing that you know, so that was I did my residency uh, back, gosh, I finished residency in two thousand and twelve, and um I think at that point, I was the third resident in Stanford history to go to, into forensics, so it was like not many at all wow. but since but since that time, um, I, there have been several residents from Stanford going into forensics, so some I feel like something shifted over there, which I'm thankful for because we there have been several at least one in each class for many years has gone into it so um something's changed over there i i don't know what it is but um obviously they're being i think a little bit more supportive hopefully <laughs> of residents
0: so but. you were you were in small town new mexico then portland mm-hmm. then albuquerque right. then up to palo alto mm-hmm. and then right. where off to for fellowship
1: yeah and then back back down to Albuquerque. Um, For uh, fellowship. Yeah. So I got to go back and work with most of the same staff that was there during my post sophomore pathology fellowship. So it was really cool to kind of come back, you know, more educated, more mature and uh, as a forensic fellow and work with the staff again. It was great.
0: Interesting. So that's almost that's almost mirroring how you went back to your small town and worked in the family practice. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. now now you've come back and you're a you're a doctor and you're going into forensics yeah. and you're going to be part of the team. But this time it felt good. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it maybe it isn't just about going back. Maybe it really is a better fit yeah. for you. Yeah. Huh?
1: Sure. Yeah. No. It's uh, yeah. And my fellowship was amazing. I we had two had two co fellows, which I think I I really do like uh, the fellowship programs that have more than one fellow because you have someone kind of going through the trenches with you that you can relate to and share cases with. So I was very thankful for my two co-fellows and uh, I'm still good friends with them today. And we'll, we'll still talk about cases. So I feel like those friendships are strong friendships that you'll have forever because it's a very unique experience that you go to go through together.
0: Yeah. Well, I, that's part of a, a lot of medical training. It's such a unique experience because it's it's so intense and so time consuming and so stressful that the people who are there with you, you really feel like you're, you know, sort of
1: bonded. Yeah, Yeah, totally.
0: So I I did my fellowship in Miami and there's a general sort of requirement that all fellowships have some didactic teaching, some hands-on teaching and some, I I believe that it's always been a requirement that you attend crime scenes. Was that the overall setup for your fellowship as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, I think, you know um I think you guys in Miami probably do a lot more scenes than we did. Um, But yeah, we had like a requirement. We had to go to so many scenes. Um And then we had, a, I just remember a, we had a big old white dry race board that had the different, all the different types of cases, like different ways people can die. And then it had all of our names, the three fellows names. And you kind of would check off like, okay, I had a plane crash case. So you check it off. Like the next plane crash goes to, you know, so-and-so. And so just to make sure that we were all getting our, you know, specific type of cases done. Um, but the great thing about, you know, being having co-fellows say they're very rare type of cases and you're only going to get one per year, um, we would all kind of learn off whoever did that case. You know, they would share everything. We would all share cases. So you, even though you didn't, you know, personally do it yourself, you're still learning from it. Yeah, but honestly, yeah, we, that's
0: one of the best parts of this field to me is, is we work with people who also really love what they do. And yes, so when something yeah. is interesting to them, it's almost always interesting to all of us. And so right. you know, there's, it used to be that when someone would come knock on my door and say, hey, come here, I need you. I want to show you something. It was always like, oh, I have my own stuff to do. Ugh, leave me alone. Right. But now yes. when someone knocks on my yes. office door and they say, come check this out, I'm always like, Woo, here, let's go find out what kind it's of crazy like, yeah. thing I'm going to see. And so yeah, that's no. a, a fun part of the job, I think.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And that's it's a cool thing being able to, to share cases with each other. That's yeah, that's, I love that part of the job for sure.
0: So now you've gone through Forensic Pathology Fellowship and you're officially a forensic pathologist. And it sounds like you had quite a, you know, change of how you learn to cope with stuff. But during this time, you also, it sounds like you got married and had some kids. When did that happen?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. So it's, oh man, that was a whole different. So I met my husband in medical school and he was uh, a pararescue man. He was in what they call the pipeline. So he was a pararescue trainee who was stationed at an Air Force base that was in Albuquerque. And so um, when I went to residency, he was stationed in a different state. So he lived um, in Arizona. Uh, I was in California. So we lived apart all during residency and during fellowship and wow, that's uh, a had, long time. That was five <laughs> years? <laughs> we lived, yeah, we lived apart five years. Yeah. And it was one of those like um we had just a very shared respect for each other's kind of career. And so I supported him. I knew what he did was very niche and not many people could do it. So I'm like, you do what you gotta do and he was like you do what you gotta do and we just Supported each other and would like meet up for these amazing vacations in like Costa Rica and Hawaii and see each other as often as we could. But you know, he was deployed overseas for months at a time, and so we um, we made it work. But it you know, it was during residency we had some of his uh, friends were killed um, during the war, and that really was like a big eye opening experience for me. Kind of even you know dealing with his kind of more possible mortality. So during residency, that was kind of another stressor for me was like, you know, I was always preparing to get that call that he was dead, which is not a healthy way to live your life. So I I actually saw a psychiatrist all through residency, which I highly recommend, even if you're not dealing with things that I was dealing with, um, just to kind of help you cope with the stress of residency, help you cope with, you know, your life stressors during residency. Um, I can't, be kylie enough about just kind of mental health in general in that way she helped me tremendously and i think um kind of her help you know it helped me too just with dealing with mortality morbidity mortality and death in general just seeing her for four years so she might have been I, you know i never really thought about it but she might have been one of the reasons too that i was maybe a little bit more comfortable with uh, forensics and all of it is just kind of all the therapy that i went with through her kind of dealing with my thoughts
0: of my husband dying. Wow. Well, no. I mean, that's, no. I, I love the shout out to therapy and yeah, I fully no. agree with everything you said. I, I am right. wondering if your husband's job gave him a little bit of sort of a leg up and understanding what you do. And because a lot of people in our lives are affected by knowing what we do every day. And so right. yeah. does it bother him? Does it, does Does it bother your kids?
1: No. So he's very, he doesn't really like to talk about it, but he'll understand. He can just be on my face when it's been a hard day and when it's been, you know, not a hard day. So um, we don't speak about details really, but he, I mean, he's done, so he, you know, as a pararescue man, he's dealt with saving lives and, you know, having people die uh, in front of him and having to, you know, amputate limbs and stuff. So he's done stuff I can never even imagine doing, but he yeah, he gets it in that capacity, and he will um, he's very supportive and understanding because um, he's dealt with a lot of deaths of his own, of, of close friends, you know, dying uh, tragically and unexpectedly. Um, so he we don't really talk about it much, um, but he definitely understands it, uh, which is good. And then my children, <laughs> they are 11 and 7, and so my son, he's older. Um, we didn't really talk about what I did until he was much older, older um, I just said oh mommy's a doctor who helps um, you know people help figure out what's wrong with people that's what I used to say but he didn't know it was dead people (laughs) so um, it wasn't until he was a little bit older and got curious and so he started asking questions and then so my daughter who's a lot younger she learned at a very young age what I did and so her questions were a little bit yeah, would or off the wall sometimes. But I was like, She's so young. Like I wish she we could have protected her from it a little bit until <laughs> her brain could have comprehend a little bit more of it. But um the now they'll just they just know some days mommy does autopsies and some days she doesn't. And so um they'll just ask me, What'd you do today? and I'll say, oh, I did some paperwork or what'd you do today and I'll say, I did some autopsies and then that's that's all we that's the end of it. I I yeah, imagine that days. pretty
0: soon they're gonna have more questions.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I I think so. And it's always interesting when they um, they're like, oh yeah, my teacher today asked me what you do because my husband is he's the one usually does the school drop off and pick up, so he interacts with the teachers most of the time, and I don't really get to see them very much, and so. They'll sometimes the teachers will ask about me, and the, my kids will say, "Oh, my mom's a forensic pathologist, and then of course that is like what will well, ask you know gets a lot of questions and one time, my daughter was like, "Oh yeah, she chopped people's heads
0: off and I was like <laughs> you know no, what? no I don't remember I you like, may have <laughs> even been there the day this happened, but I got a question on the Reddit of someone oh, no. that <laughs> had uh they messaged me and said, "Why would a medical examiner <laughs> ask me to come in to identify?" my uncle and they will only show me his, uh, severed head. And I responded that if that's happening, no. you need to call the police. Cause that is, that should not be happening. That is not no, what we no. do. And chances are what no, they meant was they're just going to show you his head because they'll cover the rest of the body with a sheet. And honestly, right. they'll probably just show you a photo of his head, Right. Um, right. Yeah. but it makes me think that man, TV and movies have really done a disservice yes. on showing what it is we actually do. Because that is, it's, I can understand yes. being horrified at the idea that we would right. call you and say, <laughs> we've cut off your uncle's head and you got to come. <laughs> That's crazy. We would never, right. ever, no, ever do something like that. Yeah.
1: And like we said before, it's so kind of foreign to everyone that their minds will just fill in the gaps. you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, based on these movies and TV and, yeah, it's so crazy. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, my little girl. I was like, ah, no, that's not, that's not, I've never (laughs) done that not in my life, but never, never will. It's not going to happen
0: with all the stuff that, that you've seen. In both in medicine and then now, especially in forensic pathology and seeing, you know, just the way that people die. And like you said, they die in a lot yeah. of a lot of different ways and a lot of ways that I mean, every day there's something that I, I could never have predicted. Right. And so yeah. with everything that you've seen, does it affect the way that you live your life? Are you going about Ugh. things differently? Are you yeah. thinking about things differently?
1: Driving for me is a very uh, stressful thing (laughs) just because we see so many car accidents and you see people who are doing driving perfectly you know perfect doing the right thing and then they're hit by a drunk driver or you know hit by someone who falls asleep or hit by someone who's not paying attention and so I always um driving for me I think since doing forensics has um has been way more stressful uh just because I feel like I'm only in control of myself but I can't control the person next to me so I don't know you know and then um as a parent, it is a constant struggle for me because we do see the weird things. So I, I'm constantly thinking, oh, you can die like that. Oh, you can die doing that. Oh, don't do that. You could die. Um, so it's that versus like let your kids live their lives. You can't keep them in a bubble. So it's like a constant struggle for me not to be too overbearing, but also to keep my kids safe and not be that really weird parent. But it's a, it's a daily struggle for sure.
0: I kind of get both sides of it because, because we see everyone that, you know, you do something stupid and you can die, but we also see people Mm -hmm. who do nothing stupid and they die. And so I think in some ways it's kind of helped me let go of that anxiety a little bit because, you know, you just kind of can't stop death. It's going to happen. You you just got to deal with it. So one thing that I did when I started in, actually it was in the critical care unit, uh, and I actually think it may have been the first time that I pronounced someone dead was mm. that night I went and made advanced directives for myself. Have you done preparation for your own death?
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You, yeah. Because you've seen families that even young people, older people that don't have those in place and just the burden it puts on living family. Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is something, you know, wouldn't you wouldn't have done probably at this age had you not gone into forensics. Uh, and seeing you know the reality of it on the other end.
0: Yeah, I think so too. and the the weird thing is when I did it, I then thought, man, i I don't know what my family wants, And I called my mom, and my mom had never done it. She didn't she yeah. just didn't feel like it was necessary, and I had to really push her to do something because yeah. I you know I said, at at some point, something is gonna happen, and right. I want to do what you want me to do. But right. if you don't give I me don't any want, guidance, yeah. I'm gonna be guessing and I don't want right. you to put me in that situation. So help me out. And I told her all that all that I needed was just an email. Send me an email right. just with a general yeah. idea. It doesn't have to be, you know, notarized and signed by a lawyer. Just give me some guidance and I can use right. that if it comes up. And that also means that right. if right. you ever need to change it, send me another email. You know? Yeah. It's right. easy right. enough, yeah. but it just it really right. helps me. And I'll tell you, since that happened, it really makes it easy. I feel more comfortable with the idea that at some point there are going to be decisions that I don't want to make, but I'll now feel like I'm doing it with some assistance. So I right. love that. Right. And I'm glad that you did it. I'm, I, yeah. I encourage I encourage my autopsy techs who some of them are like 22. It's just write it down. Right. It doesn't matter. You've yeah. seen people in here you your, never your know. age you too. Yeah.
1: That's the one thing we learn is You never know yeah. like what day is going to be your last day. Yeah.
0: You know, that's funny. That's, there's, there's very few things that still get to me. And one of them is when anyone has fingernail polish, because it's just a uniquely, that's something that someone did just for themselves to feel like they could look nice. And I, it's, it's just such a, it feels so different than when you see people covered in medical devices or you see people who've been really you yep. know, destroyed yeah. by a car accident or by a gunshot wound. It's it's little stuff that yep. reminds me that these people had no idea this was coming today, and no. that really yeah. is it can jar me out of the feeling. Um, but it's yeah. you know, in a way, I kind of appreciate that I get those little reminders. It's not fun, but it does help me appreciate right. uh, the way we live our lives.
1: Yeah. Right. No, you're totally right. I um, I have a hard time. I've um, autopsied a few people around or on Halloween that are still in their costumes. Uh, and those are always very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know? And it's, yeah, it's just, you just have to kind of sit in it for a minute and be like, Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. I can't, you, you know? can't help, but imagine them putting on the costume, you know?
1: Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, we are, we are approaching our hour on the podcast and because okay. of what we talk about, and obviously we, you know, we talk about some pretty heavy stuff. I do like to end the podcast with a couple of a little more lighthearted questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you weren't going to be a medical examiner, if you weren't going to do forensic pathology, what would you want to do both in and outside of medicine?
1: I think, um, so even though I'm not an athlete anymore, so in inside of medicine, I've thought about this. Um, even though I'm not an athlete anymore, I love sports. I still like I can watch any sport. I can enjoy any sport. And I think that um, I probably would enjoy sports medicine um, because I really, my husband, um, so he's out of the military now and he does jujitsu. He competes and coaches and is in the process of opening his own jujitsu gym here in Austin. And um, he really loves uh, body mechanics. And we talk about, you know, musculoskeletal stuff and injuries and, um, I think that I could find um, joy in doing sports medicine. When I was in New Mexico running track and field, we had two doctors, and they came through different routes. One was an internal medicine doctor, and one was a family medicine doctor, and they did sports medicine fellowships, um, and I think that would be kind of interesting. I don't think I'd want to go the orthopedic surgeon route, but just kind of more of the the internist kind of family medicine route and do sports medicine and deal with athletes.
0: Um, yeah. It's a unique be, patient population. Huh? Cause they're like uniquely driven to follow their treatment plan. And they're, you yes, know, there's right, n- nobody, nobody else. You have to go, Hey, listen, you're doing too much physical therapy. You know, that's right, the right, only right. group that will be that aggressive. And so right. in a lot of ways, they're the, also one of the only types of doctor where you often do get to bring people back to nearly a hundred percent health, you know? And so that's, yeah, that's like, kind of a you cool like,
1: thing. Yeah, if you don't do this, you're not going to play in this game or, you know, you're not going to compete. And so, yeah, no, it's, um, I think that would be interesting. But it's, you know, so different than forensics for sure. Yeah. But then if outside of medicine, I, you know, I really did enjoy working at Starbucks. So I always I just, like, <laughs> <cry>. <laughs> could I just be happy working at Starbucks or maybe managing a store? That would be cool. What and did then you like about really, Starbucks so much? I love um, those short interactions with people. So, and we would have regulars and so I'd get to know people and I would memorize their drinks and, um, I do love that. That feels people, good. That does feel good. You know, and then you just kind of, you build these like little relationships with them. Um, and it was like when I worked the morning shift, people were kind of grumpy and they wanted their coffee, but when they got it, they were happy. So you felt like, okay, I was doing them service. And then in the evenings you're working like the date shifts, so everyone's on dates. And I used to just love watching people on dates and <laughs> just, kind of nosy that way. When nice I
0: worked at Starbucks, for, uh, during college, I, when I was living, I guess it must've been my freshman year. Cause I was living in the dormitories and the Starbucks that I worked at was on the end of our sort of bar strip, you know, the, the road near every college where they just have 20 bars yeah. all lined up. So yes. at the end of that Pretty road good. was the Starbucks that I mm-hmm. worked at. And the most yeah. fun shift was always the closing shift on like a Saturday night because we yeah. would close at I think we would close at two or something. I mean, it was very, very oh late because we would still sell coffee what? all the way and food, all the way up until that time. Yeah. But that also oh meant God. that when I was leaving work, that's when all the bars were closing down. Yeah. And so I would yeah. walk home sober in my, yeah. you know, in my khakis black shirt and green yeah, apron. Yeah. And I'd be walking yeah. down the street watching people uh wildly blackout drunk. And yeah. usually yeah. we had leftover foods that were going to be yes. discarded that we were allowed to, we, we were allowed to give away at the end of the night. So yeah. I would leave Starbucks with a, a platter of cookies and I would walk down the street and just nice. give out cookies to drunk people. And yeah. it's, I've never felt more popular in my life.
1: Oh yeah. You were just like making everyone's life. Oh
0: yes. so, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that no, was, that was fun. I liked that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I also, so I have a very short like pixie haircut and I really enjoy getting my haircut. So I always think like, would I, could I just like go back to cosmetology school and cut hair, you know, be happy, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Those yeah. are like the two things I always think like, huh, because you're kind of um, dealing with people, at least in my experience, people tend to like to go get their hair cut, unless you mess it up and they're not nice, but well, um, yeah. it seems kind of like an enjoyable, enjoyable experience. And, um, but yeah, honestly, I, I really do Like, my route to forensics was a little bit maybe not the traditional route. I feel like a lot of people go to medicine knowing they want to do forensics, but I'm very thankful I found it because it is um, a very rewarding career.
0: You know, Um, I'll tell you, in talking to different medical examiners and specifically asking people about what it was like for them, um, it seems like the traditional route to forensics is non-traditional. It seems like most people are doing – you know, there are people who knew when they were 16 – but, but people t- do a lot of things before they do this. And I think yeah. that it's kind of good. I think that it gives us yeah, a more broad yeah. worldview when we come into this and we, we need it. Right. Right. Yeah. So no, it's, um, I enjoy it. Tell me about some time in your life, whether it's related to being a doctor or not that you laughed really hard. It doesn't have to be <laughs> funny to me. I'm not asking you to tell right, me, a right. I just want to hear about you laughing yeah. really hard.
1: I, you know, I've, I was thinking about laughing. Um, So I, whenever I think about laughing hard, I automatically, my mind goes to, so when I was playing volleyball at the university of Portland, I was a middle blocker and my roommate was one of the other middle blockers. And uh, we became very close friends and it was just one of those friendships where you kind of knew what the other one was thinking. So when you look at each other, you know, Oh gosh, she's thinking this or she's thinking that, or, you know, If someone says something and you look at her, you know, she's how she's reacting. And so we used to have to do these drills where we were on opposite sides of the gym and you had to pass the ball back and forth and you had to pass it like 50 times consecutively without the ball dropping or else you had to start over and everyone had to do it. So it could make for some very long practices because it was just everyone had to do it 50 times.
0: That sounds exhausting. And
1: Invariably, whenever we had to do this drill we would start laughing hysterically and it was like, we would get in trouble by the coach and it was just one of those where you like, you couldn't stop laughing. And I was like, getting mad at myself, like, don't be this immature. But I would look at her face and she would like have a smile on her face. And I'm like, don't smile at me. So you would try not to look at each other, but like you couldn't not look at each other because you were passing the ball to each other. But then it would just like digress into this like laugh fest and we would get in trouble. And so it's, um, those were always like good good slash bad memories because it was like (laughs) just when you really need to control yourself but you can't just oh gosh.
0: Yeah I love that. That's a great story. That's I think very very uh, recognizable for all of us. I think we all have had a friend like that at some point where it's just you're so close and done so much together that it just is fun to be around each other and so I love it.
1: Right right and just when you you're like it's like the most inopportune time where you really don't want to laugh but you can't control yourself. Yeah. (laughs) You just have to like, oh, gosh, not now. Here we go. Here we go again.
0: So. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the yeah, podcast. Um, is there is there sure. any uh, any place that people can find you on social media? I don't know if you're a social media person.
1: I, you know, I'm not really. I'm kind of, the social media is kind of new to me. So if if I become more open on social media or learn more about it, I'll let you know. But really not right now. I don't, okay. don't really have any. <laughs> well, fair enough. You don't,
0: not required okay. at all. Um, <laughs> but... I really appreciate you being on here and uh, yeah. telling me what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. And yeah. if anyone out there is interested, uh, I recommend going to reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology and you can learn more about what we do. Or if you're interested in forensics in general, but you don't necessarily want to be a forensic pathologist, you can go to reddit.com slash r slash forensics and there's a lot of forensic professionals there that can tell you a lot about what they do and ways to be involved. You can go to thename.org. That's the national association of medical examiners official website that's the name.org and on there it is geared a little bit more towards people who are already forensic pathologists but there's a lot of educational content there's a lot of outreach and you do have the option to hire someone for a, uh, a private autopsy if that's something that you're in need of if you're trying to get a hold of me i'm at dr hanberg on instagram and twitter and while we still have tiktok i'm at forensic md And yeah, that's it. So see you next time on Becoming a Medical Examiner. Thanks so much.